This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. Writing is truly an art. There are so many types of writing genres, different kinds of voices, and diverse audiences. No more is that true than the audience of a dissertation. When PhD candidates write a dissertation, they have a clearly defined audience. It's their dissertation committee, whether that's two or three or more. The candidate must tip his or her hand to all the academic authors who have come before and who have contributed to the author's unique thesis. And so the writing is really positioned for the audience. And that's true of any kind of writing. Some PhD candidates who want to write more popular just soon discover that the audience of two or three that made up their dissertation committee is much different than a wider audience or a more popular audience. And so to write for a broader audience requires a different approach to writing. Today, we are talking with Alan Omling, a former senior executive at UPS with an expertise in supply chain management. Today, Alan is a consultant on highly technical subjects such as blockchain and 3D printing. He is a fellow at the University of Tennessee Supply Chain Institute. He is CEO of Thrive and Advance, a consulting firm, and he is an advisor to Deliver Easy and Airflow, two highly technical, uh, what we would call fourth industrial revolution companies. Alan, we are so grateful to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Recently, Alan completed a dissertation on disruption and made the bold decision to turn his findings into a book. So Alan is here to share what he has learned about translating a dense topic like innovation and all the different areas and aspects of that into a book that is accessible by a wider audience. So before we begin, Alan, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your long and wonderful career at UPS and what you're doing now. Thanks, Dave. Yes, I did have a, a long career at, at UPS, 27 years, and it's not too common these days to stay with one company that long, but I was, uh, I was really blessed, and I feel like I had eight or nine careers within the same company in terms of the different different jobs that I had. I, they actually hired me out of grad school. I was, I was hired by corporate marketing and they started me in industrial engineering in, at UPS Airlines in, in Louisville. So, and I was single at the time. So Louisville, uh, you know, really wasn't the place I wanted to be. Um, <laughs> but, you know, as fate, fate would have it, um, I ended up meeting my wife there on a blind date. And we've been married 26 years. So um, that's great. So, so things, things, things work out. I moved into... Uh, marketing strategy in the in the mid 90s when the internet was just coming on and I begged I found out about a special assignment looking at the internet and how that might impact commerce and impact UPS 
sounds silly right now, but you know, back then it wasn't certain. We didn't really know. I, I begged to be on that, uh, on that team. And that, that led to a six-year assignment in multiple roles, helping UPS define their e-commerce strategy. And then I moved into new product development, front end and the back end of new product development, rolling out products uh, worldwide, uh, which was which was a lot of fun. Spent six years running marketing for UPS Global Logistics and Distribution. Everyone's familiar with the brown trucks. They're not familiar with UPS actually doing fulfillment and di- distribution for companies, which they do all around the world, mainly in high tech and healthcare is where they where they focus. But they also do so, some retail, and then spent a lot of time in corporate strategy, working on a lot of different different projects like 3D uh, printing, as 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 you mentioned, and I I still keep current with that. And uh, my last role with UPS was actually my favorite role. It was running UPS Ventures, which is the corporate venture capital arm of UPS. And we looked at all sorts of uh, investments that were adjacent to UPS in autonomy and uh, technology, different platform type companies. So that was, a, that was a, a great role, but I knew that I wanted to start my act too. So I took early retirement in March of 2019 and, uh, and kicked off act two. Before you kicked off act two, you did start and did you start and complete the PhD or did you complete the PhD after you retired from UPS? I completed it after I retired, but I was the last really four years at UPS, I was taking classes on weekends. So I had, you know, I had planned out my act two. I knew what, what I was, what I was going to do, what I wanted to do. And so that, that took up a good, I didn't have a lot of weekends and vacations for the last four years of my UPS career, but, no kidding. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was, um, I, I was pretty much through my dissertation when I retired, I, I had, I finished it up and defended later in, in 2019. And then, and then act two was in full gear by then. And can you just explain to us what your act two is exactly, or explain to our audience what your act two, two is? So I wanted to, I wanted to have a foot in academia. And one of the reasons that really compelled me to, to go into academia is kind of leads into my dissertation. I was, I was working on innovation project projects throughout most of my career in a big incumbent organization. That's a lot of boulders being pushed uphill. As I was trying to, you know, continue to, to stay focused and, and, and push the boulders up the hill, it occurred to me that disruption, this, this idea that smaller, more nimble competitors can come into an industry and come in at the low end of an industry and, and end up taking, taking over that idea at that time had been around over 15 years, but yet I was seeing the turnover in the Fortune 500 only accelerate. And, and I was seeing it in the company that I was in. I was seeing it in the companies that I was working with. 
and it was it was confounding to me like why is that why is it that after all this information about disruption that it's only getting worse from the perspective of an incumbent that's getting better from the expect from the perspective of a startup i was perplexed about that and um, i was looking for answers and i was studying this in my in my doctorate and what was amazing to me was that even though I knew from an academic standpoint, I knew what to expect in terms of how executives would react to certain ideas. And, and I had read all the books and done all the seminars and I, I kind of knew what to, what to do and yet still wasn't able to punch through. I realized there was more going on here than, than I knew. And I knew that I could not, I could not get to the answer in the place that I was. So part of this decision to pursue a PhD was this frustration of trying to encourage or create innovation at what you call an incumbent organization. Could you explain what an incumbent organization is versus a startup. I think we know what a startup is, but explain what is an incumbent organization and, and why is it so hard to push new ideas, new innovation? Why is everything uphill in one of those types of organizations? I guess the short answer to that is an incumbent is a successful company, right? And it, they're, they're an incumbent because they have been successful. They've done some really good things. And the people within those organizations have been rewarded by helping that company grow. And, and it's also the biggest challenge that these incumbent companies have because you have a bunch of people that understand what got them where they are, and it's really hard to change that. That's when you get into behaviors and culture and everything gets, gets settled and you you get people referring to policies, right? <laughs> and that uh, and it, those things become the status quo. That has some really good aspects, right? Because there are some things about culture and understanding behavior and what gets rewarded that helps an organization function really well. But when the external environment changes, that's when those, those status quo behaviors become an anchor. Yeah. Um, that's really hard to shed. And so that's what I was really looking at is like, what is it? What's causing this anchor, the friction in, in companies? And, it's, and so it's what I ended up focusing on um, during my PhD, which, you know, most of it was really learning how to research, right? And then, and then I was able to channel that into the area that had been troubling me for so long. Did you go into your PhD and your research thinking, I really want to write a book someday? Or when did that idea of turning your research into a book occur to you? Did you always have it in the back of the mind? Or was it something that came later on? You're thinking, yeah, this research would be compelling as a book. It actually came later on. I wasn't thinking about writing a book. And what what really compelled me was as I was going through my interviews uh, for my dissertation, 
and I would go to these interviews and I would, I would leave them feeling richer than when I started. And I, I felt like they were just giving me gold nuggets. And can um, you tell us who those interviews were with just for our audience? Yeah, sake? yeah. The, the interviews were with basically three groups, senior leaders in incumbent in, industrial type companies and consumer products companies, startups, uh, leaders in startups, and then colonels and generals in the military. Those are like the three groups. And the, the military might seem like the outlier, but, right. but you know, I was trying to get at how, how do people make decisions, high stakes decisions under conditions of uncertainty? Nowhere is that more true in, than in the, uh, in the military. They were actually the most unvarnished answers I got uh, were from the military leaders. They, they pretty much told it like it was, followed by the startups and then the, the C-level folks from the incumbent companies, not as much, right? You have to, you have to kind of parse what's a PR talking point from what's reality. And so you get that from, you know, talking to different people in the, in the organization, but uh, it's, it's much more difficult. So go back to then you said you were richer after each interview that you did and you were gaining all of this insight and understanding. And how did that lead you then to make that decision to write a book, turn your thesis, your dissertation into a book? As I was, as I was getting this, you know, all this information, I was, I knew that I wanted to share it because I knew that this is information that I can't keep trapped. I need to, I need to get this out. Um, And the more information I got, the more compelling it was where, you know, I started to see patterns across different industries and different size companies. And, and I started to come across some universal truths that people just don't talk about. And those are the things that are really interesting. And so I, I started to uncover some things that, that helped me answer why is it that, that incumbent companies find it really hard to change. As I got more into the academic side, an academic paper is, is typically very narrow, mm-hmm. right? You're, 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 you're building on what others have done. And the whole goal of a academic paper is just to make an incremental improvement. And that's, I'm not knocking that. That's really sound. That's the scientific method. And uh, it's, it's fantastic, but it's tough to, to drive any groundbreaking insights. You know, more importantly is not a lot of people read academic papers. You know, when I was in industry, I don't think I ever in my 27 years, well, ex- in, until I got into my doctoral studies, read academic papers. The way people get academic information in industry is usually through consultants, right? So that's consultants read it, and then they translate that for practitioners. There's so much great knowledge trapped in academic papers that nobody knows about. Um, And so, so part of what, you know, I'm 
I'm trying to do with the book is, is take this academic knowledge that's trapped, these interviews that I've done, where I've collected these gold nuggets, which are, you know, essentially insights and anomalies that help drive action and new thinking. Combined with my experience in, in, with a Fortune 50 company to drive a better outcome for companies because I've always felt that one of the biggest travesties is the perpetuation of the idea that business is not personal. Huh. Because business is personal. It is very personal to the people and their families that are involved in any business. And so I would always look at, at UPS and, and, you know, not think about the, you know, the senior management that would be affected by a decision, but, you know, the 450,000 people that weren't at the table that are um, experiencing the outcome of those decisions, good or bad. That's the audience that I'm, I'm trying to get to that senior management and that layer underneath that middle management layer that can create a better work environment and a better outcome for their employees and customers by adopting some of the ideas that I've learned. And the best way to do that is through a book, mm -hmm. um, not an academic article. So you had a mentor who was also on your dissertation committee who shaped your thinking about a book. Could you talk a little bit about that? And for those of our audience who maybe don't have a mentor, but just uh, help, help our audience understand just the power of a mentor to encourage you during this idea of, of, of thinking about a book. I had three dissertation committee members Joe Astrakhan and Torsten Pieper, who are, are both highly respected in family business, great academics. And then my third was uh, the late, great Clayton Christensen. And, and Clay really shaped my, my thinking around um, disruption. He, you know, he's the one that coined disruptive innovation. But I always go back to one of my early conversations with Clay when I was talking very in a very animated fashion about what I wanted to do. And he stopped me and he said, Alan, God didn't create in data. God didn't create data is what he said. And it, so I was, I paused and I, I didn't really know where he was going with that. And he, he said, well, God didn't create data. It's people, basically, you know, it's it's all based on the on the past. And and one of the best things that you can do is help other leaders like yourself understand that the greatest source of their future success is the data that has not been created yet. And he has published many papers, many books. Um, the Innovator's Dilemma was the one that kicked it off, but Competing on Luck and, and, and others. And, um, you know, such a humble man. And um, 
was really uh, was really a guiding light, and and so I I leaned on him quite a bit as as well as Joe and Torsten, because they sent me down a road that I didn't I I wouldn't have gone down, and it made all the difference. And that was to look at a a military leader uh, named John Boyd who most people have never heard about. He's most famous for this idea called the OODA loop, the observe, orient, decide, and act, which he came up with after uh, years of studying while he was in the, in the military. He was, he was quite the, 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 he was not only a, a renowned Air Force pilot and mentor, but quite a scholar as well. And so I had those confluence of ideas that from my committee members that were, was, was just so powerful that helped form my thinking. And I guess the, the other part about it was they challenged me, right? And you need that. You, you need to have that person say, well, why do you think that? And did you think about this? And why did you, why do you say it that way? Why don't you say it this other way? All those things are really important and you have to be humble and you have to be open to it. And it's hard, right? It's, there were some days where I got drafts of my dissertation back that were just, it looked like someone bled on it. There was so much red marking and, you know, I just have to, I'd look at it and I'd have to put it aside and just leave it for, for a day. And then I would go back and I would dig into it and, and at the end of the day, it was better because of the feedback that they, they gave me. And I think it's, you know, I think that was important in the dissertation. I think it's in, in, important with writing a, a book as well. I think, it's, uh, I think it's very true that you don't know what you know. You need other people to help bring out what you know. And, uh, and many people, I'm, I'm sure, have felt this, that you, you know, in a conversation, you're, you're struggling with an issue and it just comes out of your mouth and you don't know where it came from, but people ask the right questions and it, it, it triggered the right synapses in your brain and, and out came the idea. That kind of serendipity happens all the time. It's really, it's really it's more difficult for it to happen in isolation. Right. That's something that we talk a lot about on this podcast is the importance of feedback and seeking out feedback because of that, that collaboration, that, that drawing out of stuff that you don't know exists inside of you. And I think that's a really important reminder and the humility that goes along with that, the ability to put something aside and not be overly offended by it, that you can't make progress. So that's, that's great insight. If it's, if it's hard to look at immediately put it aside for a bit. What are some of the other differences between writing and publishing your dissertation and writing a more popular book like you're working on right now? You know, I, I think one of the biggest differences is you can't put opinions in academic articles, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's one of the challenges of of writing for academia because if it's if it's something new or or you're reading the tea leaves and stating a position on what you think will be based on certain facts, it's very it's very difficult to put anything like that in an academic paper. You know, 95% of an article in academia 
is is setting up the research and the and the methodology. And so you don't really get to the punchline until you're you're pretty much through the 30 page dense paper. And you've bored everyone to death, right? I mean, that's why people don't read academic articles because who wants to right. read about the methodology? <laughs> that's that that's right. The reach of academic articles and the audience, right? They're the audience of an academic article is typically academics and academics are not in the boardroom. Academics are, don't have a seat at the table in, you know, when these management decisions are being made. So it's a different audience and academic articles aren't the right tool to get, to get at that audience. But I do value it and I still, I'm still doing academic articles, but the you know, the goal there is to incrementally build on, on knowledge using the scientific method, but life, life is too short. I think I would go nuts if that was my, my only outlet. I want change to happen now. One of the things I want our audience to take away is if you have, if you tend to be more academic or you have written a, a dissertation, you are in the process of, of completing a PhD or you have a PhD and you want to take that next step to translate that idea into a book idea, what would you, what would your recommendation be to them? Here's the first thing you need to do and maybe number two and number three. The key, especially if you're doing qualitative research like I did, I went through and there was there was so much in the interviews that I just, I couldn't use in the, in, the, in the dissertation, but there were nuggets. There were things that as someone said it, I was going, okay, aha, that's, I, I didn't expect to hear that. So now I'm going to dig on the next interview and the interview after that, I'm going to, I'm going to see if they saw the same anomaly. And then you start to get these interesting trends that are not obvious. And those are the things, once you parse those out, what I ended up doing was creating themes around different quotes. I would collect these quotes, these nuggets, and then I would went through and I classified them around, this is around uh, management or leadership or, or, or some topic like that. And that helped me form my story how I wanted to, to, to tell the story and who the audience would be and how it would help them. All research has that, right? All research has that. It's just a different way of looking at your, at your academic research. And, and the thing that I, I think is really important too is as you're, having the, as you're going through that research, uh, you have opinions, right? You have to be really careful about your opinions in academic research. You have to be very careful about um, not letting your biases creep in. When you're writing a book, people are buying the book because they want your opinion. Yeah. yeah. Right? You have to trust yourself. That's right. You start to get to a new level of understanding because when you have opinions, you have to understand, you have to get in and, and really think about what are other ways to look at the same thing? And do you have a bias? And where did that bias come from? But I will say, you know, there's one thing that was very similar about writing a dissertation and writing a book. 
that I did not expect. And that is the self-doubt. I expected it in the academic arena because I was around you know, much more experienced academics that I had, you know, a ton of respect for. I had not completed a lot of research of academic type research. And so I was always questioning, is this good? Is this important? Do I have this right? You know, and my mentors and my dissertation committee was very helpful in that respect. I did not expect to have those same doubts when it came to writing a book. Because, because I was very confident in um, what I knew and what I had experienced. And I had uh, pressure tested a, a lot of the concepts that I, that I wanted to highlight in the book. I had pressure tested them pretty well, you know, over the course of really five years. I thought, I'm going to let it fly. I'm, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to, to write this book. I'm just going to let it fly. And I, you know, a very good feeling about it. And then as it got down on paper, and I just think it's so important, you know, once you get your ideas down on paper, it just, it takes on new meaning, right? And so I was always second guessing myself. Am I killing this? Is it too much? Is it not enough? As I'm writing, I'm always getting new information in. And, and so the, the biggest thing is, you know, it's just that self-doubt of, is this really special? Is someone, yeah. is someone going to read this? Or, it, are people going to get value out of it like, like I think they will? You know, you just have to fight that. You just have to fight that. I fight it every day. It's not like I, I, I found the, the magic formula to get rid of self-doubt, but I fight through it. And I just keep telling myself that if it's not perfect, it's not perfect. You need to get the ideas out. Mm-hmm. And if just one idea from the book helps one person, then it's a good thing that you did it. Yeah. I hope it, I hope it is accepted and I hope it does change the lives of, of a lot of people. But either way, an idea unexpressed is, is a tragedy. Mm-hmm. And so many people and myself included, have ideas and don't speak up because they don't think they're new or they, they're unsure how people will accept it. And sometimes you just gotta, you just gotta put it out there. Um, And that's what I'm doing with my book. We'd like to know where you are with the book project, how many months before you think it'll be released. And, and you've already expressed some of the fears about the book, as well as some hope for the book, but just uh, talk about where you're at right now. And then just talk about how you imagine your book affecting like a middle manager or senior level manager at a company. Yeah, I'm about seven chapters into a nine chapter book. I've been working on it for most of the year. And, you know, and a good part of the the early part was just structuring the book. You know, I'd never worked with publishers and just trying to understand all that was was all new to me. I, I feel pretty good. The, you know, I've got seven draft chapters done. I think the last two chapters will complete be completed over the course of the the next month and a half to to two months. 
then there'll be a, a period of going back and editing. So I'm hoping that that I'm ready to turn it over to the publisher by as early as late February, uh, but definitely by March. And that's kind of the, the schedule we're on right now. And I'm really excited because I can see it all coming together. And as I go through and edit, you know, again, the the biggest thing that I'm going to have to guard against and, and the reason that I really prize editors, you know, external editors, is there's a tendency to, to want to throw everything in that you know. There's a real danger there, right? I want to make sure people understand what time it is without having to know how the clock was made. Uh, <laughs> right? That's great. So, yeah, so so that's... That, that's where I am. And the second part of your question is, how do I see it getting into like a middle manager? I'm going to take the, the book and I'm going to disseminate it in a lot of ways. Through the book, I'm going to uh, have a blog and be communicating through my social media. That way, I'll be doing public speaking engagements. And, you know, just like I did when I was trying to convince executives, I'm going to get the nuggets out there in a lot of different ways, multiple times. And all it takes is to get the right person that is open at the time that they hear one of these nuggets to get them to just go, aha, or I didn't think about that. And hmm, I want to, I want to learn more. And ideally my, my book is around organizational velocity and how companies can observe, accept, and act on changes in the external environment with speed and agility. And it talks a lot about how the hidden sources of friction within companies that people don't don't hear about. And I think a lot about Dilbert and and how Scott Adams is just so funny because it's he he brings up things that people just don't think about that but everyone universally recognizes. <laughs> and that's what I'm trying to do with some of the, the friction points. And, and ideally, I want that division manager in their Monday morning meeting to set aside 10 minutes to begin talking about it with their staff. Hmm. And maybe they spend 10 minutes every Monday talking about some of the concepts in the group and how it could be applied to their business unit. That would be my nirvana. What I love about that, Alan, is how specific your audiences and how they will use the book. I think that's a big takeaway from this episode. If you're a PhD candidate or someone who has completed a PhD, you have a dissertation, you have to translate that idea into a, an idea that is as specific as what you just mentioned, but also the audience. And, and I think you're, intimate knowledge of that divisional manager and the idea of how you want the book to be used. I think that's really powerful. That kind of specificity, I think it creates energy for the book project, but it gives it a hyper focus. Yeah. And a measure for your success as well. Like if you get feedback from somebody who's actually using it, that's a measure of your success of articulating your idea. It really takes discussion for people to understand the, the nuance a lot of people will talk about failing fast, which that again, what do you call that failing fast? Yeah, about failing fast around innovation that, that you need to fail fast and, and they'll throw out that that buzzword. But as soon as something fails, whoever 
whoever was leading the project gets crushed. Um, <laughs> or or they'll, they will say that they do tolerate failure. But one of the nuggets that I learned is that the real successful companies don't just tolerate failure, they expect it. Hmm. If, if, if you're not failing, then you're not learning. Huh. You're not pushing the envelope hard enough or fast enough or broad, broadly enough. Those are, you know, just think about that. And, you know, a discussion in a Monday morning meeting, have, have we really pushed the envelope? When's the last time that we failed at something? Or have we been focusing so much on just incremental gimmies that we are moving forward, but it's the tortoise and the hare? Alan, this has been terrific. Well, Melissa, I think it's time for our new feature that we're going to add. That's right. Should we call it word of the day or word of the episode? Word of the episode. Words of the episode, because you're going to have one of your favorite words, and I'm going to have a, a word. So why don't you start? We'll call it words of the episode. <laughs> so my word is one that I learned very recently when somebody on Instagram commented on a picture of me where I'm smiling and my eyes are kind of scrunched up in glee and I'm very joyful. And she said, that's such a Duchenne smile. And so I went and looked it up and that's what it means. It's a smile that means joy. And you can see it in your eyes, the way your eyes are, are wrinkled and your smile. So I love that word. It's from, Duchenne was an anatomist and he coined the term after studying lots of different smiles. So. Duchenne smile, that's a great word. Okay, so I'm going to uh, give you my word. So this whole idea for words of the episode came up because we were talking about schadenfreude, that German word or schadenfreude. And we had one of uh, our listeners go, you know, Dave, you should do these, you and Melissa should do these words of the episode or word of the day, whatever. She said, but I didn't know what schadenfreude was. So that has to do with when you take pleasure at the misery of others. So that's not my word for today. My word, <laughs> <laughs> you can see that I'm a, I'm, I have this dark side to me, schadenfreude. So my word of the day is garrulous. Now it's not like an uncommon word, so it has to do with somebody who is very talkative and usually in trivial matters. That's my son, Davis. Seriously? He's garrulous. Yeah. He's garrulous. And my husband is laconic. He laconic. says that. So what's <laughs> of, of few words. <laughs> Sparse, you, you use the word sparsely. <laughs> I wish my son, Corey, who's the same age as your son, Davis, I wish he were garrulous. He is laconic. All right. We have dueling talkers or not talkers. <laughs> well, I think that's a wrap. So we have, how do you say that again? Duchenne? Duchenne smile. Duchenne smile. And he is a garrulous, or he talker. is garrulous. Garrulous, right. You yeah. wouldn't say garrulous talker. That'd be a redundancy. He is garrulous. He is garrulous. Alan, we encourage you to use these words in your conversations today and you can credit us. <laughs> I will. I will do that. Uh, I'll see. You know what? I'm meeting up with my son right after this, so I'll see if I can impress him. All right. All right. Thank you so much, Alan, for being on with us today. We really appreciate your time. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. 
Now buckle up and write. <laughs>